three, two, one. In-depth creative. All right, sorry. Mm. Audio first, storytelling. <laughs> Indonesians love instant noodles. Rasanya itu... Taste is like ingrained to our taste buds. It's the one thing they miss when traveling outside of the country or living abroad. Anytime I feel like missing home, pull up Indomie <laughs> and you're home. Whether you are from Sumatra, Maluku, Java, or Papua, it is your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner. It's like a staple food for me, man. But did you know that instant noodles are made from wheat, a grain that Indonesia doesn't even grow? So how were instant noodles introduced to the country? Well, it turns out, the story behind it reveals how a nation's food culture can be created accidentally. I'm Tanita, and this is Indonesia in Depth. Before we continue, we just want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by In-Depth Creative, Indonesia's first independent podcast production company that produces immersive audio stories and thoughtful essays in English and in Bahasa Indonesia. We partner with brands and creators who want to meaningfully engage their audience through audio-first storytelling. Rice. It's been a staple grain for all segments of Indonesian society across most of the archipelago. Indonesians still like rice eater. They don't eat rice, they don't eat. That's Indonesian culinary expert William Wongso. You may have heard of him cooking beef rendang with celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay. Remember, never do rendang in the quick way. In the quick, no, I'm not rushing this rendang. Although rain is stopping play here. In the 1960s and 70s, William Wongso lived in several cities in eastern Java. And his daily meal looks like... My regular breakfast practically either soto, satay, or nasi with a kind of uh, just leaf across the road. is a, a woman selling just rice with a braised milk fish or bandung in the chili sambal. Then I was lucky to encounter those indigenous flavor and grew up with this. Meanwhile, in Salatiga, which is a farming city in central Java, Medi Wijaya was just a young boy in the 1960s. And this is how he described his meals. We ate rice for breakfast, for lunch, for dinners. And it's typical Japanese meal like rice and then uh, sayur, which is just vegetables with soup, probably some curries, and then tofu, tahu goreng, tempe goreng, and then some uh, fried chicken or fish, or we would get uh, some beef some of the time. But yeah, that's basically the meal that we have for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinners. <laughs> yeah. But for some, rice was out of reach. Mak Chung and her younger brother, Robert Stefanus, who lived on the island of East Nusa Tenggara, have vivid memories of just how difficult it was for them back in the 1960s. 
In the year 1962 to 1965, it was really hard times. Even until 67, there were always hard times. The famine that occurred in some parts of Indonesia occurred due to a combination of factors. A worldwide rice shortage, along with failed crops and a growing population at home. Our mother sewed kabayas in exchange for cassava. They measured it using black. One black in exchange for one kabaya. After she got the cassava, she brought it here, crushed it, either turned it into some sort of cake or cloth dessert. After two or three days, we, we began to cry. We said, please, please don't let us eat any more cassava tomorrow because we're just so full of it. And then mom would respond, what are we going to eat then? There's no rice left. <laughs> Since Ma Chung and Robert's parents were public servants, portions of their monthly salaries were paid with rice. So when the government was forced to ration rice, things got even more difficult for them. A lot of people ate cassava, then bulgur, but it was actually a horse's feed. Bulgur, by the way, is a wheat product made from whole wheat grain that is ground or cracked. PNS itu kan ada jata beras. The thing is, all civil servants were rationed with rice. It was normal back then. Nowadays, we call it dolok or bulog. We could still eat, but when the crisis hit in the 60s until the 70s, we were rationed with some sort of grain called bulgur. Expert accounts on how widespread the famine actually was back then remains unclear. But what we do know for sure is that the famine was taking a toll on the country. Despite this, President Sukarno continuously declined offers of food aid from Western capitalist countries, except in a few instances. In his 1964 speech, President Sukarno advises people to change their dishes and to mix rice with either corn or cassava to reduce their rice consumption. And later, he told the crowd, The title of his speech, Tahun Viver Pericoloso, or The Year of Living Dangerously, was so infamous that it would later inspire a film called The Year of Living Dangerously, starring Mel Gibson. Why don't you tell them a true story, gentlemen? Why don't you tell them that Sukarno makes empty speeches and builds monuments to his vanity while his people are starving to death? Why don't you tell them that he says, eat rats? During the tension of the Cold War in the 1960s, food aid was actually one of the biggest tools that both the communist and capitalist governments used to secure support from other countries. The U.S., which at that time had its Agricultural Trade Development and Assistance Act, or PL-480, or now called the Food for Peace program, was despised by Sukarno due to his left-leaning socialist ideals. But in 1966, 
Indonesia's stance towards Western aid changed completely. As our war in Asia gets bigger, a largely unnoticed victory over the communists has been decisively won in Southeast Asia. Today it is General Suharto and his army that crushed the communist coup. It is Suharto that leads the effort to remove President Sukarno. On March 12, 1966, General Suharto took control of the government. After the downfall of Sukarno, and found a nation in turmoil with political instability, widespread poverty, hyperinflation, and the beginnings of a communist purge. As laid out in the 2014 book by Richard Borsuk and Nancy Chung, called Lim Su Leong Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia, American Vice President Hubert Humphrey met with the Indonesian Foreign Minister, Adam Malik, a few months later. After the meeting, Humphrey wrote to President Lyndon Johnson that Adam Malik... He and General Suharto understand that Indonesia's large population and uh, great potential wealth, they could play a major role uh, future role in Asia and, and in the UN. They would like to do this uh, increasingly as a friend of uh, the United States. And I think it's very important. By then, Suharto demanded and needed a large amount of food aid. And the US wanted to take this opportunity to keep the anti-communist government in power. Now, for the moment, however, they are severely handicapped in dire economic emergency. Their own government's political ability depends upon their being able to provide food and clothing for the people. That's something that they don't have and they need. So the need was mutually strong. In 1967, the American National Security Advisor Walter Rostow alerted President Johnson that, and I quote, if Suharto is to stay afloat, he must have 325 million US dollars. To which President Johnson responded just a few days later. Now, Walt, I want to do everything I can for Indonesia and as quickly as I can. So I need you to send me that program and I'll take a look and see what, what we can do and look in terms of... But while both Suharto and the American government agreed on an aid program, Suharto was unable to get the most important staple that he wanted, rice. Because uh, Indonesia was essentially an entirely a rice-eating culture, when Suharto came to power and he needed foreign help, Suharto's hoping that they can supply rice. But the United States grows very little rice was not a, a rice-eating culture. That is journalist and author Richard Borsuk, one of the authors of Lim Su Leong's Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia. They basically told Suharto, we are happy to give you food, but we can't give you rice. It's going to be wheat. And Suharto 
balked at it a little bit because wheat was not in the Indonesian diet. But the Americans basically said, you'll learn to love it. At that time, the U.S. had a great surplus of wheat. And they convinced the Indonesian government that their people will sooner or later like it. So in 1968, the imports of wheat, wheat flour, and bulgur began to flow into Indonesia. The United States, as you mentioned, gave food aid to Indonesia. So did Australia at one time. But the food aid was very important early in the Suharto period when he is consolidating power. This is in the late 60s. And Indonesia was in a very bad way economically at the time. And people were struggling. A lot of people just ate rice. And then you had a, a few years of very poor rice crops that Indonesia had to import rice but with a very limited foreign exchange to do it. So Suharto was keen that another source of food be developed, which was the, uh, the flour milling. Suharto hoped that over time, Indonesia would become less dependent on rice. But Bulgur didn't really fit the taste palates of many Indonesians. Even the smell is unbearable. It made us throw up because it smells nasty. Mm, it was... It was like eating rice waste, but it's just to fill ourselves. We have no idea whether the bulgur came from Thailand or the U.S. What we know is it was considered horse's food there. But in Indonesia, we had no food, so they crushed it and recooked it. Those who had to resort to eating bulgur, like Mak Chung and Robert, despised it. And those who were better off, like William Mongso or Mehdi Wijaya, weren't forced to eat it. I remember at one time, it's a replacement to bulgur. And bulgur, we also have a vivid memory that uh, we always said that, that was the horse food. Now, bulgur is everywhere. It's a common. In those days, we always think bulgur is a horse food. I think that is the only re- I remember when the government tried to substitute the white rice to bulgur. So the government learned that bulgur wasn't the right wheat product for Indonesian taste buds. Indonesian palate is very strong. For instance, in those days, we don't know much about Japanese taste. Even they were exist. They said too bland, too light, not but dust. But records from 1966 show that not only did the Indonesian government feel that it was still necessary to continue receiving wheat and bulgur, but they decided to actually increase it. Mr. President, Indonesia requires large amounts of rice and is attempting to obtain rice not only from the United States, but also from Burma, Thailand, and some from Taiwan. I suggest increasing uses of wheat and bulgur. 
but was told that there's a consumer resistance due to the lack of understanding and custom. Mr. Malik agreed that it would be in the long-term interest of Indonesia for wheat and bogor to be increasingly introduced. Now that's extremely important for the country's development and for this time. While people like Ma Chong and Robert in East Nusa Tenggara were eating bulgur, wheat flour was being heavily promoted in urban areas in Java, especially in Jakarta, to be made into bread. In a 1967 telegram note to the American State Department from the U.S. Ambassador to Indonesia, Marshall Green, reported that Suharto was hoping to change the national diet habits, and he said, and I quote here, starting with Jakarta, so that bread is substituted for rice on the breakfast menu. My first recollection and my first experience eating bread was when I was away from Salatiga. I went to Jakarta at that time and stayed with my grandparents. Probably it was in 1971, yeah. I went to stay with my grandparents at that time for a vacation. And the neighbor invited me to come to her house. And she offered me bread for breakfast. And that was the first time that I saw bread. And I ate bread with jam. And I, and I thought that it was... Wow, wow, this is special, and this is something, that, that was the first time I ate bread, you know. Medi Wijaya tried a loaf of white bread, or roti tawar, for the first time in 1971. But since Indonesia lacked wheat milling facilities, American wheat flour was initially supplied by facilities in Singapore. As part of our quest to learn more, we decided to discuss this with Heru Laksana, the owner of one of Jakarta's oldest bakeries, Maison Wiener. My name is Heru Laksana. I'm the third generation owner of Maison Wiener in Jakarta. I was educated as a baker with the title of Konditormeister. You can spot his shop easily. If you go to the Kramat area in central Jakarta, you'll find an old house with a bright red striped awning. It looks old, because it was built in 1936. Indonesians back then were more familiar with cake. Only the Dutch eat bread as staple food. While only during Lebaran or New Year or Chinese New Year would people bought breads and send it to others. I recall that there were only plain bread. There were no sweet breads like we see now until 1970. Heru Laksana was born in 1954 and has memories of his grandmother and father running the shop in the 1960s and onwards. So, prior to 1970, plain bread is what most people know. Tanek Chuan or Lao still sold mainly plain bread until now. 
the open top with curved top or the regular squared plain bread, which we call sandwich bread nowadays. I also know plain bread from when I was little, so when I went to school, we would bring plain bread with butter and mesas, or plain bread with butter and sugar. Although he believed his bread was not that expensive, bread was not necessarily a food that was accessible for everyone. Indonesia does never have, never grew wheat bread. We always know that it was imported from somewhere. So the impression is that because it's imported, it's more expensive, and it is more expensive than rice. And so that's why we consider that eating bread is only for rich people. According to a 1981 study on wheat product consumption in Indonesia. By Stephen Magera of the U.S. Economic Research Service, it showed that while yes, the consumption of wheat products were increasing throughout the 70s, it was still pretty much available only for the wealthier urban segments of the society. Again, Richard Borsuk. And at that time, you didn't have many uh, wealthy. These were rough times, but at the the opening of the first Bogasari. Mill, which is still quite a big、uh, landmark on the coast、uh, in North Jakarta. One of the speeches made reference to Indonesia is now open for foreign investment. Unlike in the Sukarno period, we believe a lot of foreign investors will come, and they'll like to eat cake. And here's the、uh, this will supply the raw material, the bakeries and baking. While bulgur was unpalatable, and bread was either out of reach or unfamiliar to most Indonesians, there was another wheat product that had a chance of being accepted nationally. Back then, it was supermeat. The brand that I remember was supermeat. Supermeat. Indonesia welcomed its first instant noodle manufacturer in 1968 by the company Lima Satu Sangkyu, and the name of the noodle, Supermi. Hello, ibu mungkin belum lahir kan? Maybe you weren't born in the 60s. You probably wouldn't remember this song from the TV. Supermi, Supermi, oh 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 oh, Supermi, Supermi. Itu ada di televisi. Nomor satu. Supermi number one. Supermi Sangkyo lima satu. Supermi Sangkyo lima satu. Lima satu Sangkyo received help from a Japanese company. Japan itself was the leading producer in instant noodles ever since Mamofuku Ando invented the product in 1958. In 1970. Three seventy-four, probably.、Uh, I was in elementary school. I was a grade three or grade four at that time. I remember eating supermi, and I thought that it was good. That was the first time I had、uh, supermi, and I enjoyed it. 
for us it was special uh, special meal because uh, we don't get to eat it very often so when we eat it we, we had it so we enjoyed it yeah Supermi eventually reached Makchung and Robert in East Nusa Tenggara Instant noodles were there since the 70s onwards. The first one was supermi and nothing else. I remember getting sick and admitted to the hospital because of supermi, perhaps for its strong spices. Back then, people were also unfamiliar with the concept of an expiry date, so they just eat it without checking. <laughs> but it wasn't easily accessible for them. Robert recalled. When it comes to instant noodles, I think it was expensive. We don't have much money and only certain types of people consume noodles. And since it just got out, it tastes different. Usually the noodle was cooked for special occasions. So we considered a luxury food at the time. Nowadays, we eat it almost every day. During this conversation, we were joined by his neighbor named Taneo, who recalled on just how much effort it took just to get super meat. Wait, wait, wait. So I'm curious here. Were super meat that good that people were willing to sold their chickens to afford it? Can you tell us more? Oh yeah, back then, my father, Mr. Fao, did just that. It's not like they don't like chickens, and they were glad to sold it for money. But they were also delighted to have super meat. It just tastes so much better. But it was nonetheless a sign of success. People outside of Java also seemed to enjoy instant noodles. It was tasty on the palate, and it was easy to make. Now in 1968, the U.S. agreed to increase its food aid, sending more bulgur, wheat, and wheat flour to Indonesia. Marshall Wright from the U.S. National Security told his advisor that Indonesians had finally accepted wheat as part of their diet. We no longer have a problem in pushing wheat. Everybody is a believer. Our problem is to make sure we don't choke this promising infant to death. In 1971, Suharto opened Indonesia's first flour milling facility, Bogasari Flour Mills, in Jakarta. The move that would forever change the scale and magnitude of how instant noodles were consumed in Indonesia. Coming up in part two of The Making of a National Food Culture. Things really only changed when Salim came into the business. 
which was rooted in Suharto asking them to, could they make noodles for the army? Because there was a period when Indonesia was, rice supplies were very tight. The birth of Indomie, the backdoor deals, and the rivalries that made Indomie the most powerful instant noodle brand in Indonesia. This episode is produced by In-Depth Creative, audio-first storytelling. Producing this episode required an incredible amount of research and numerous interviews with people across Indonesia, as well as experts in Singapore and America. We want to especially thank Richard Borsuk for the work that he has done through his incredibly interesting book, Lim Su Leong's Salim Group, the business pillar of Suharto's Indonesia. Now, we highly recommend this read as it's insightful, relevant, and very helpful when trying to understand Indonesia today. The book is available in both English and Indonesian and is published by Isis Yusof Ishak Institute. And we also want to thank William Chandler, who assisted us with interviews and studio equipment in Singapore. And also Kim Lutanoni, who conducted the interviews in East Nusa Tenggara. And finally, to Stephen Maguera, a veteran of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, who provided us with unique insights on Indonesia's agriculture sector throughout the production of this episode. This episode would not have been made possible without their help. Thank you for listening. Thank you.